0: Dronei Guzman with the American Heart Association. We all know that stroke is a leading cause of death and disability. Together, we can change that. Join the American Heart Association and the Montana Stroke Initiative for a series of podcasts covering guideline-based stroke care from pre-hospital through acute treatment and even into post-acute care. To learn more about timely, effective treatment guidelines and best practice sharing. Thank you so much for listening in. If you want to learn more about this project, you can go to Heart dot org forward slash mission lifeline montana
1: welcome to montana fast chat my name is piper kometz and i am a stroke nurse in bozeman montana i'm also the daughter of a stroke survivor and today on our show we have kathy off here as a guest from missoula montana Uh, kathy is a speech language pathologist in missoula and kathy i'm sure i haven't given your introduction enough justice so if you'd like to introduce yourself a bit further and talk to us a little bit why um, stroke and speech are
0: important in your life, both personally and professionally. Thanks, Piper. Yep. My name is Kathy Off. I am a speech-language pathologist. I'm also a researcher and a university professor um, at the University of Montana. I'm also the chair of the School of Speech, Language, Hearing, and Occupational Sciences at the University of Montana. My particular area of expertise and area of research is in rehabilitation for stroke survivors who have aphasia, a disorder of language and communication. I also have founded and co-run the Big Sky Aphasia Program at the University of Montana, which provides post-acute rehabilitation for stroke survivors with aphasia here on our campus. my history with stroke and with aphasia in particular um, has been a long one. I've been fascinated about the relationship between the brain and language since I began my undergraduate studies at the University of California in Berkeley in the fields of linguistics and cognitive neuroscience. Um, My passion for stroke and language um, recovery kind of happened from Uh, One moment when I had a professor who was teaching a neurobiology course, he had a five gallon bucket with a fixed or preserved brain that he had plopped onto the podium. It was dripping wet and squishy and made a fabulous noise when he plopped it up onto that podium. Um, And I was just hooked. I was totally fascinated with how the brain works and um, our potential to have influence over it. Um, whether we're talking about learning or rehabilitation. Professionally, I've spent the last 20 years of my career providing services um, and advancing the research for stroke survivors who have aphasia. I've said this word aphasia a few times and um, I thought it would be probably a great idea for me to explain what I mean by that. It's a disorder that's caused by damage to the language dominant hemisphere of the brain, which is usually the left hemisphere. Um, It impairs speaking, reading, writing, and understanding others speak um, or auditory comprehension, and it can range in severity and the way it presents across each and every stroke survivor. Um, I've never seen two cases of aphasia that are exactly the same. Thank you so much for your introduction.
1: I knew I didn't give you justice in your introduction, and just like I didn't give you uh, justice in the introduction... I also, I have to admit that I've been a nurse for, I guess, 12 years now, and I started in the ICU where my vision of um, speech therapy was that the speech therapist would come in, perform a swallow screen, and then recommend a diet. Um, and so that was also not giving speech-language pathology enough justice in the understanding of the depth of the issues that you address and work with patients on. Um, in. In having my dad be a stroke patient for three years, I've really noticed that uh, our language as a family surrounding him has vastly changed, and it's sort of changed for the worse. Like, I've realized that as his disability increases, we start to exclude him from our conversations, and we exclude him from simple things. Like, I'll tell my daughter, um, we're going to grandma's house. I forget to say it's grandma and grandpa's house, even though he very much still lives So I've been thinking a lot from my nursing and my daughter perspective um, about speech, language, conversation, and how we can monitor ourselves with this. Um, You know, conversation is like breathing. It's something that we do on a daily basis without even thinking about it, right? So I'm just kind of uh, curious to ask you how... How you coach patients, and specifically stroke and aphasia patients, and I know every stroke is completely um, different and different from another stroke. So I'm kind of just uh, asking you to speak broadly about how you coach stroke and aphasia patients um, to reclaim their functionality, their identity, their relationships um, post-stroke, and and knowing this from my perspective, that also is going to include coaching their caregivers or their family. So I'm kind of curious
0: how you you approach this. And that's a real broad question. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Piper. Um, it, it is, it's a lot, right? Thinking about conversation is thinking a little bit about who we are. So um, big picture, speech-language pathologists, we treat from birth to end of life across a variety of settings, right? Educational, hospital-based, private practice, all sorts of settings. For stroke survivors in particular, we're assessing and treating swallowing, voice, speech, language, and cognition. So things like memory, attention, and um, kind of our ability to plan and execute our plans during the day. But really, it's our ability to communicate which makes us as humans unique, right? Speaking is one of our most complex cognitive, linguistic, and motor skills that we do. And we do it without thinking. We're We've been doing it since we were born. And for most of us, we don't have to put a lot of effort into it. We kind of let our thoughts go and open our mouth and let it all come out. Um, But once you've had a stroke, that's not the same situation. It's not as easy to formulate your thoughts into language. Um, And then to make your um, motor system follow through with the plans to say the words that you want to say or the sentences you want to say. Or the big thoughts that you want to say. So, my job as a speech pathologist is to help identify where the breakdown is happening for communication. So, is it just speaking? Is it speaking and reading? Is it speaking, reading, writing? Right? Um, and how are the um, the ways that these different impairments of language present? Um, how do we how do we see how they're impacting daily life? Right? So. If I'm having trouble writing, in addition to speaking, my texting is not going to be good. My ability to send a quick email isn't going to be great. Maybe I can't leave a voicemail um, to my family, right? So all of my communication is very effortful and may have strengths and weaknesses in different areas, but is um, very challenging for me to do my my everyday things that I do to maintain things like relationships my own identity as a human and as a conversation partner, as a mom, as a researcher, right? All of those things. Um, So we help them as speech-language pathologists to navigate these communication challenges. And one of those things that we focus on, like you said, Piper, is this active conversation. Um, Conversation can be defined very simply as the talk between two or more people in which thoughts, feelings, and ideas are expressed questions are asked and answered, or news and information is exchanged. So many of the things that we think about conversation from um, kind of a very initial standpoint is that it's this exchange of information. However, it's also the heart of who we are. We use conversation to maintain our social relationships, to create social closeness. So this is that idea of excluding or including our family members in everyday conversation. We use it to negotiate our sense of self, who we are. We think out loud and talk to our friends and family about who we are, what we want, what our goals are. We use it to help to manage our health, our own personal mental health, and we obviously use it to participate in everyday situations. For those who've lost the ease to have conversation and to communicate, we see lots of social, social isolation, a lot of depression and um, a very big reduction in quality of life. So we see this um, idea of learned helplessness quite a bit from stroke survivors with aphasia because they're no longer able to easily communicate their thoughts and intents, and so they start to pull away and rely on others to do the communicating for them. We don't want that as speech-language pathologists to be the case. We want everyone to have autonomy and independence And be able to be making their own decisions because aphasia is not a loss of cognition or intellect. It's just the um, reduced ability to communicate. Um, So, yeah, if you have, I was going to kind of move into talking about conversational coaching specifically, but what questions might you have, Piper? Well, I
1: think that is huge. It's really interesting to think about something that we do on a daily basis and don't even think about, and then having to break that back down. It's almost like learning to walk again, right? Um, But I just think that that's something that we don't think about as much in post-acute care and stroke, is that that ability to communicate is your identity. It is part of reclaiming um, a meaningful life and existence post-stroke. I am a little bit curious about this learned helplessness, um, it it seems like that can happen really easily in my experience. And so I'm curious about what point in the game, obviously early rehab is best, but what point in the game are you coming into these um, stroke patients and their caregivers' lives? Um, because I'm thinking that, you know, if you can have early interaction with these people, then you might be able to avoid this learned help helplessness. Um, but are you seeing these patients at every stage of the game? So you have different, um, barriers to breaking down this, um, the bad habits that they've learned?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think this is the real challenge, right? You're, uh, when you think about acute care, um, there's so much going on, right there. The day is packed <laughs> for the patient. They have people coming in and out of their room all day. Speech language pathologists are often, um, primarily managing the um, oral intake, right? So swallowing disorders, if there are any, um, where we should be doing initial assessments of speech, language, and cognition, and we should be training um, family members and staff at the hospital immediately on the best ways to be communicating with the particular patient, given their unique set of um, language or speech impairments. And so, yeah, I From the educational standpoint, we're training our students that it should be immediate that we start to have these conversations, that uh, including family and friends and care partners in these conversations early on while you're in the hospital to train basic, uh, we we call this communication partner training, and um, we should be doing this from the very beginning. And I think that's a relatively new um, perspective, uh, new meaning maybe 10 years or so, um, and it's still not regularly happening in acute care. Um, But we need to be doing this communication partner training where we make sure that the people who are uh, really involved in the patient's lives feel comfortable. We know that friends drop off. We know that people stop coming around because they don't know what to do. They don't know how to communicate. They feel insecure and nervous about doing something wrong. Um, they they want to be helpful and they don't know how. And so, really, it is our job as as um, speech pathologists to work with a interdisciplinary care team from the beginning to help this training um, and to start creating the situation where everybody that's surrounding the um, person with aphasia is assuming that that person with aphasia is competent. Right. So learned helplessness comes from this feeling that you're not competent anymore. And just because you can't communicate your thoughts and feelings and opinions and directives doesn't mean that you're not there and that you're not competent. And I think the one of the things we talk about when we're teaching communication partner training is that the very first step is to assume competence. So I'm going to assume you are the same person you were before and that you're struggling to understand language or be able to communicate that language via writing or speaking. Interesting. Um, I like that
1: assumed competence. I think that that is something that does get lost pretty quickly um, in my experience. So how, can you talk a little bit about how you start to coach
0: conversation? Yep. Yeah, it is. It's interesting because most people don't think about conversation as being the, um, most important part about communication, right? You, people think about what sometimes is called functional communication, which is expressing basic needs and wants. And it turns out as humans, we're pretty good at getting those across. Like we can gesture or point or whatever to get our basic needs across. Um, That is not where the focus should be. It should be in, in communicating what's on the inside, you know, what you're thinking, what your thoughts are, how you're feeling. So some of the things we do, is we sit down and we talk with both um, either care partners or the person and or the person with aphasia to teach both verbal and nonverbal communication strategies. Right, so we want we want to help the care partners understand that they're going to have two roles now. Right, one role is to be themselves as a care partner, um, and the other part is a little bit of a. Uh, um, translator interpreter right they have to start to think about carefully changing their own speaking and listening behaviors to be good communication partners and this is hard we've been doing conversation our whole lives and we don't think about it and now you have to step back and say oh wait i was talking really fast i wasn't listening as carefully as i should have because i i'm gonna read your mind i know you so well right um, and those are those are normal behaviors, and we just have to start to bring them under control. And so those are the conversations we have with families, and then we practice. So we practice strategies. Some things we think about are very simple, slowing down the rate of the conversation, being okay, actually really okay, with long, quiet moments, right? This is so hard. Um, we don't like there to be quiet during conversation, and we have to start to learn to be comfortable with that. So teaching both the care partners and the person with aphasia who's in the moment struggling to come up with what they want to say, the patients to let that happen. Um, and there is a lot of self monitoring that's going on. And so when we're training, we're, we're letting these patient family dyads or triads, however many people are involved, practice the conversation while we're there so that we can guide the use of strategies. So we might be using things like using a whiteboard with writing keywords to help understanding. We might be encouraging the patient to use writing um, as an alternative communication strategy. Um, Those are a couple of the kind of the, the simple things. Some of the bigger things are helping the care partner to know that like, Their job is to help the other person have a turn in the conversation, not to speak for them. And that's so hard. (laughs) That's really hard. I can understand that. That's so hard. So, you know, what do we do to help the other person have the opportunity to communicate via writing, via speaking? Maybe there's a smartphone feature that is is really helpful for a particular patient, like a text-to-speech. There's all sorts of things we can do to kind of modify communication um, depending on the person's needs. And so we really just want things to slow down during conversation, stay, um, stay on a topic and help the person with aphasia know that you're on a particular topic, right? Introduce that topic to them and just be accepting of however they want to communicate, one of one of the biggest uh, tips we give family members and care partners is to not worry about the correctness of the speech production. So if you understand the message that the person said, be good with that. Don't worry if it was perfect. If it sounded great, maybe it would, the speech was kind of distorted or slurry. That's not the important part for conversation. For conversation, we just want people to get their message across. And if we understand that as a listener, that's where we should be like, great, I understand. Let's move the conversation forward. So
1: I'm just curious about the nonverbal communication that you coach. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that, because in my head, I can't even begin to come up with um, ideas for that. And I've been living this for three years. So I'm curious to hear what you have to say.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we think of, of um, gesture as being incredibly important when gesture is useful for the patient. So um, accompanying any verbal production. So some people are able to get parts of words or parts of sentences out, but not the whole thought. Can they also use a gesture or can they also write a keyword, or? Could they use, um, I don't know if you've ever seen an alphabet board, but where all the letters and numbers are on a sheet of paper and there's um, room for being able to point to the letters to spell them out if that's something that works for the patient. One of the things we use them, I mean, we live in in a time where technology is absolutely phenomenal for nonverbal communication. So Um, we use smartphones and tablets a lot and we train our patients and care partners to help refer to, um, internet searches for pictures, or we pre program phones and tablets with particular like high frequency things that we know topics that are important for them to point to. Um, one of my favorite low tech options is called the Oxford picture dictionary. It's a whopping $19 on Amazon. And, um, it has all, uh, it is organized by setting or context. So like things you'd find in the kitchen or things you'd find at a park or things you might find by a lake. And so it, and then, um, in addition to all of the pictures, it has words. And so this can be really helpful if you have a communication breakdown and you don't know what the person is referring to. If you know generally the topic that they're in, you can flip kind of to these pages and then search for the appropriate word or or words that they're seeking. So those are um, picture use, written keywords, gestures are all nonverbal pieces of communication that we um, we call multi-modality communication, right? We want it to be all modalities um, if the speaking is impaired.
1: And. Kathy, just to clarify, if somebody has that expressive aphasia where they just really can't get words out, um, it doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with writing all the time. So it can be mixed, right? Like they may not be able to talk, but they could write. Sometimes they can't really talk or write. Um, And then sometimes isn't there that um, receptive aphasia where there's speech that comes out, but they can't take in um, meaning, or
0: conversation, or direction from the outside, is that correct? Totally correct. So we do. We often think about expressive versus receptive aphasia. Um, the interesting part is that in many, but not all, cases, people who have trouble speaking may also have trouble at this in the same way writing. So sometimes they're able to write words more easily than they can say them, but sometimes it's just as much of a challenge. Um, For people who have receptive aphasia where they have trouble taking in language, that could be that they're having just as much trouble reading as they are listening to you speak. I think the worst part about receptive aphasia is that for, you know, the majority of people who are not speech-language pathologists trained in this area, it's hard to know if the person is Um, understanding everything or pieces of information that you're giving. So one of the things I always do is reduce the speed with which I'm speaking. I reduce the complexity of my sentences and I write keywords that accompany my, my language that I'm saying to the person. And hopefully all together, maybe even with some pictures, that helps get the information in for the person with aphasia. And then we can also help in the same way to get it out, whether it's speaking, writing keywords, pointing to pictures, gesturing, those sorts of things.
1: So much of this reminds me of learning to speak a foreign language. Um, And I speak just enough French to get by to travel to France and find the bathroom and maybe get something to eat. Um, But that's the functionality of language like you were talking about. And if I were to sit down at a dinner table conversation and want to share more of who I am or thoughts or ideas, um, that would be very frustrating for me. So this is sort of my analogy to what you're talking about is um, it almost would be good training for people who don't have aphasia, but want to have a little bit of understanding of what it's like just to plop them down in a foreign country and have them try to communicate and see what that frustration is like. It might give a little bit of empathy then to being a caregiver or a guide to a person who does have um, aphasia. But but we had talked a little bit um, before, and I think that this was a really interesting thing that you brought up, a term that I had never heard, and it was, I think, was it code
0: switch? Yeah. um, Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, So code switching is usually used as a term when... Um, A person speaks multiple languages or multiple dialects of a language, right? And so in different contexts, you use language differently. We actually all do this all the time, right? I'm not going to use the same type of language with my students in a classroom um, or with the Queen of England than I would with my best friends, right? I switch, I use more colloquial language. I probably curse a little more, um, right? My my language is gonna be fluid depending on who I speak with. And so this code switching could be kind of an analogy for the, the care partner as well. You don't need to change your language all the time, but when you're talking to the person with aphasia, you need to, to change the way you're talking. And I think your analogy for a foreign, um, foreign language speaker is exactly right. I'm not going to speak as fast to somebody who um, I know doesn't have English as their native language, right? I'm going to try to make sure I check in that they're understanding all the words I've used. Those are all the same strategies um, that you would use with a person with aphasia, and you would just switch. You'd lean over and talk to your friend with one style of language and lean into the person with aphasia with another. It really makes me realize how
1: important the communication partner is in this. And again, I'm just thinking of, you know, I may try to say something in French And if I get the snooty response back and the person just switches to English and starts talking to me because my French wasn't up to speed, then I feel really bad about myself and I'm not willing to try more. But then there's been times when people um, have slowed down to talk to me, have given me credit for trying, um, and that really progresses me to want to try harder. So I can only imagine with a stroke patient, and the um, care partner, communication partner, how important that supportive relationship is and that code switch into being supportive um, and how that can just build and grow as opposed to sort of pushing it back down by being impatient. And from my own experience, I know that patience with that is very, very difficult to learn. Um, So yeah, I'm just sort of Amazed, I don't think we talk about that as much, at least I haven't, about how important the communication partner is in all of this, because you do kind of see it as the stroke patient's issue that they need to work on, but it's a team approach and a team effort. Um, and I do know in talking to you in the past that you have a, uh, an aphasia camp that you host every summer, and it really does address this uh, communication partner
0: relationship is that correct? It is. Yeah. And I think even um, kind of from a more broad perspective, Piper, that um, the speech language pathologists and probably all of us as healthcare providers need to be thinking about the patient as not just the person with the stroke, right? But as, as the care partner and care partners that are involved. And if we start treating um, everybody as the team, instead of just saying, well, I'm going to grab the stroke survivor for (laughs) one hour away from the care partner and instead treat kind of as a team, I think we'll start to see, um, see changes. Like really, if we were to do this really early on in acute care and post-acute rehab. Um, but we absolutely, during our summer, we run a summer program for four weeks in Missoula that is, um, Uh, designed specifically to treat the family. And so we um, provide intensive aphasia rehab for the person with aphasia. We have a caregiver education and well-being weekly groups. We train communication partners um, in communication strategies throughout the four-week program. And we include them in some, we call them community engagement activities, But the idea is getting the person, the stroke survivor, and the care partners out into the community together so they can practice these new communication skills with people in the community um, that's in a more natural way instead of just kind of in this clinical um, rehab setting. So you're absolutely right. The the care partners are essential. This is a team event. Um, Recovery is going to take a lot of folks, and we just hope that more friends and family will persist and try to learn some of the, you know, be willing to um, to learn some of these strategies so that um, our stroke survivors don't lose um, as many friends as they currently are doing. From my acute care experience, I don't think
1: we approach stroke recovery as a team event. And I think that that's a really important takeaway from this conversation, is to start approaching it from the get-go as a team event. And um, I think that the language can be changed pretty significantly on the acute care side of things so that that expectation is set. Um, But I I am curious more about the aphasia camp and what specific activities do you do in this aphasia camp?
0: Yeah, so I can give you kind of a rundown of what it looks like. It's um, four weeks. We meet four days a week for five hours a day. So we work 10 to 4 Um, folks come in and patients with aphasia have a one-hour individual session where they are practicing their new, new speech skills very intensely. They then transition into small conversation groups to make sure that they're practicing their skills in a more natural conversational setting. We do the same thing again in the afternoons. And at the beginning and the end of every day, we have everybody all together. So we take eight families at a time, Um, We have eight student clinicians who are training as well, and we have all the care partners. So we don't limit the number of care partners that attend. It's usually about one to two people per stroke survivor. And so those folks come at the beginning and the end of every single day um, to kind of get us all together, have the opportunity to answer questions. Um, And then once a week, the care partners have a specific educational and a wellness group. That's almost two hours long over a lunch. Um, and then towards the end of the week, we start bringing care partners into individual treatment sessions to practice those communication partner training sessions. We also do, um, once a week we do something in the community. So that could be something like adaptive fishing. Um, we've done adaptive bike riding, uh, we've gotten golfing, <laughs> um, I think this week we're going to the Missoula Art Museum for a guided, um, very aphasia-friendly art tour. Um, And so we try to make sure that we're really incorporating the community, helping to build awareness of what aphasia is as well. We happen to be in the midst of Aphasia Awareness Month. Um, It's June of every year. So um, it's kind of a perfect time for us to be both educating the community and bringing the community to our patients um, with aphasia as well. Um, and then we, we do a whole bunch of pre and post testing for our families so that they can see the recovery that they've made in that four week period um, in more formalized assessments. And we send them home with a, about a one month uh, plan for continued activities. Um, so that if they are in between providers or they don't have regular services wherever they came from, that they have at least a one month period of, of continued work that has been individually designed for them based on kind of how they did with us. Are there camps like this throughout the United States? Um, this is uh, really interesting. Uh, fact. So we have in the United States about 14 intensive aphasia programs like ours. Um, Most of them are on the East Coast. Um, There's uh, a couple other small ones starting to um, be on the horizon and building. There's a couple in Canada. In the entire world, there's only 21 programs like ours. And so the the research is trying to catch To be fast enough to help the insurance system and the funding systems pay for these. Obviously, the cost can get pretty high if it's in a um, traditional setting. Um, We're lucky we're at the university, so we're using student clinicians to help us keep costs down um, and try to make this as affordable for patients as possible. But obviously, it requires relocation as well, right? They're here for a month in Missoula, which Um, at the moment. Missoula is a little on the pricey end. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So we're, we're working really hard with our community to find, um, you know, residential options that are, that are not too exorbitant. So it is private pay. It is private pay. Um, We have a, we have a handful of scholarships, so we try to make, um, make as many people able to be here as possible. Um, But it, it is, If you're thinking about kind of cost, it's fairly low cost compared to private um, hospitals and things like that because we're at a university.
1: And do people repeat this camp or is this a one-time deal?
0: Yeah, we have had um, folks repeat. We try to, um, our mission is to provide services to as many families um, as possible. And so sometimes, depending on how many people apply for the program, we have to do a little shuffling where we say, okay, you're going to need to take the year off because we have more families that haven't had an opportunity like this. Um, we're really sensitive to where people are located. And so for people who are more rurally located with less access to resources, we, um, we certainly prioritize getting those folks in um, over some that may, you know, maybe wanting to come from the East Coast but have other options available to them. So it's a little bit of a juggle game each year as to um, who gets in, but we do a lot of conversations with the families to find out kind of what their needs are, what their finances are like, um, and kind of where they're at in their recovery. So there's a waiting list every year? Every year.
1: Wow. What an awesome thing. Um, Thank you, Kathy, for sharing all of this and for all the work you do. It's so important. I think that... It's amazing to me how much I learn on a daily, monthly, yearly basis about stroke. Working as a stroke professional, I thought I knew a lot about stroke, and then my dad had a stroke, and it blew up in a whole nother world, and I learned a lot about that. Um, and, you know, just going to the yearly stroke conferences in Montana and talking to other professionals and meeting other stroke survivors, it is just a giant conversation about post-acute care and stroke and trying to reclaim identity, to reclaim enjoyment, and to reclaim a sense of a meaningful life post-stroke, especially for people who do have significant disabilities that they are left with. Because as we know, many people who have strokes um, do recover and have a very good and functional recovery. But those that have deficits that are noticeable, um, so I think that this work that you're doing is so important and um, just kind of communicating with with the general public about the caregiver and the communication partner, and also just awareness for the whole public that they can also kind of think about code switch, perhaps, when they are dealing with somebody who, not just a stroke patient, but somebody who has any sort of disability. Um, so I think it's really important, and I love the ideas that you've brought up, and it's sort of expanded my mind and my thinking for my own career and for my own personal journey with my my dad. We have a lot of work to do, it sounds like, within my family because um, we're loud, we're impatient, and we we talk over him. So I'm gonna bring some of these um, conversational topics that we've discussed today into my own home environment and I'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> I know I'd be happy to help. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And I guess um, just kind of as we're wrapping up here, is there anything else that you feel like you want to share with the general public about speech language pathology
0: and the work that you do? I, you know, I think I can point people to a few resources if they are looking for more information about aphasia. Um, The National Aphasia Association is awesome. They have resources. They can tell you where people um, have these kind of intensive or different kinds of aphasia programs. Um, That's at aphasia.org. The Aphasia Access is another phenomenal organization, and they have a bunch of video tutorials on how to do better communicating for people with aphasia. So this is a great resource, and that's aphasiaaccess.org. Um, and then we're happy to be a resource um, for any questions that people have, um, and so we'll we'll add our contact information into the show notes as well. Um, and just I think think of the speech pathologist as your um, your communication specialist that's happy to help with kind of uh, not just the person with aphasia or the stroke survivor, but the whole family. Great. Thank you
1: again so much. And to all of you listening, you can download this podcast anywhere you like to find your podcasts. So thank you for joining Montana Fast Chat today. And um, we look forward to welcoming you you back to another session here in the future.
0: Thank you so much for listening in. If you want to learn more about this project, you can go to heart.com. Org forward slash mission lifeline Montana.
1: Ahura Media Production.